Hey listeners, my name is Elisha, the founder of the Witnesses Podcast. It's so beautiful to have you listening to our podcast. And I want you to know something that that means a whole lot to me. Thank you for tuning in. And one thing I love to tell all of our listeners is, it's not just about you listening, but listening to understand. Understanding is the most important thing. So important. So, you have to listen, learn, and practice. Thank you so very much and happy listening. Angela, it's nice to have you on the show. How are you doing today? I am well, thank you. How are you? I'm doing fine as well. Okay, before we begin with your introduction, you know, oftentimes I love to talk about the essence of this show, which is to invite amazing guests, amazing guests like Angela to come talk to us about their triumphant stories because we believe that in our audience there might be someone who is stocked up in a situation that Angela came out of triumphantly. So that person or people listening to Angela speak, they might actually pick some information that would help their life get transformed. So that's the essence of this show. So within the next few minutes, Angela, I want us to get started with your story, the challenges that you faced, and how you overcome them. So afterwards, I've got some questions for you. All right, let's get started. Great. So my story, and I love how you talk about what we overcome as children and the challenges that we have. I think, um, as you know, I just published a book, Are You on the Right Bus? Navigating Change on the Road to Success. And it really started with that question. What I hadn't stopped to consider is that for most of us in most developed nations and certainly in other nations too, we don't really have a lot of choice as a child. You don't have a choice about the environment you're born into. You don't have a choice about your education. You don't have many choices really until you reach childhood. And the thing that I realized pretty early on in life is that Everyone in your life, not just your parents, but maybe teachers or a mentor have this expectation. They have a place they want you to be. And I think as a child, when you're trying to figure out what's your place in the world, we have this tendency to follow what our parents did or follow what our parents tell us to do or what a teacher did. But the truth is, is that we all have the ability to make choices and to decide what we're going to do or how we're going to react to what's being asked of us. So for me, you know, I grew up just a middle-class kid in Iowa. I have wonderful, loving, kind parents. I'm really lucky in that regard. My parents went to, um, they graduated from high school. They had some college and they went on to work. But growing up, I really thought I was going to be just like them. Like I would go to college, meet someone in college, get married, move back to my hometown and lead this very kind of averagely happy life for the rest of my life. It just never sat well with me. And kind of starting in like the fifth or sixth grade, I had these ideas that I I wanted to do something more. I wanted to be more. And I started testing that with some of the assignments that were given to me. Um, one of the, the best stories I have. So in the sixth grade, we all had to do this project. It was an interview project where we had to interview someone we admired. 
And everyone in my class was, oh, I'm going to interview my next door neighbor or my grandma or my mom. And I remember sitting there thinking like, well, I like all those people, but I wouldn't say really admire them. And in my mind, there's a gentleman named Dr. James Van Allen. He's passed now, but he discovered the Van Allen radiation belts in space. And he lived in my hometown. And I thought, I'm going to interview Dr. Van Allen. And my teacher told me, she's like, you can't call him and interview him. He doesn't have time for you. He's a very busy man. But I went home and my mom said, he's listed in the phone book. Just call him. And I did. And he agreed to do an interview with me, just like a sixth grader from Robert Lucas Elementary. But um, when I went back to school the next day and I told my teacher, like, oh, my gosh, Mrs. Clark, I'm so excited. I'm going to interview Dr. Van Allen. She was furious with me. She said, I specifically told you not to bother him. He has more important things to do than spend time with you. And in the end, she gave me a B on the paper, supposedly for misspelling some science word three times. But I realized in that moment that not everyone wants you to succeed. And so sometimes you just have to have that bold courage and say, I don't care what people around me are expecting from me. I expect more from myself. And I think the other thing too is, you know, we start to believe what people tell us as children growing up. And I'm the youngest of two. And my brother was just incredibly smart and really, really gifted. And I was the kid that had to try hard at everything. And to make me feel better, my parents used to say, you know, well, Chris is really gifted, but you're a really hard worker and it's going to work out for you. You're never going to be the best at anything, but you work really hard. And so in my mind, I developed this dialogue that I'm not the smartest. I'm not the most talented. I'm not the most gifted. I'm just kind of average. And I let that define me in my academics early on until my eighth grade teacher kept me after school. And he said, he asked me, he's like, why are you getting a B in my class? And I said, well, because I'm a B student. And he said, who told you that? Well, my parents did. And he looked right at me and he goes, you're not a B student. You're an A student performing at a B level. Get out of my classroom. And it was just eye-opening to me because I had never, I never thought of myself as an A student, but he thought I was. And so it was in that moment I I mean, I really thought like, oh my gosh, maybe I am. And I went to all my teachers and said, what would I have to do to get an A in your class? And because I didn't know if I could do it, I just reminded myself that Mr. Brems believed in me. And if he thinks I can do it, maybe I can. And so that was kind of my first moment of borrowing someone else's confidence before I had my own. And I think if I had one thing to say to people listening or people watching, listen, we all struggle with confidence. We all struggle with imposter syndrome. And so when you're in those moments, if you can think of someone who has unwavering faith and belief in you, borrow their confidence in you until you can find your own. Amazing. Amazing. That's so beautiful. Okay. Um, Let us begin first with the first question. Are you ready? I'm so I'm ready. Eager, yeah, I'm so eager to learn about this. Um, can you explain what you mean by our inner kindergartner? You got that? <laughs> yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. So you know, you know, like when you're you're a kid, right? You're you're four, five, six years old, and you go to school for the first time, or you go to you know, a soccer game with your peers for the first time. And you're just, 
you don't, you have no self doubt yet. Like when you're in kindergarten, you just, you're, you're just there and you're not afraid of rejection because you haven't been rejected. You're not afraid of, you know, somebody telling you, no, you're not, you're, you're generally just kind of who you are and you don't have that fear of going up to another kid and saying, you know, hi, my name is Angela. Do you want to be my friend? But then somehow in those late, you know, kind of that late childhood, 9, 10, 11, and then you see all those studies about how much confidence plummets, especially for young women starting around age 9, 10, 11, and for young men too, and persists during adolescence, that that just unwavering, like you don't have to think about it. It's just like, of course, everybody wants, when you're in kindergarten, everybody wants to be your friend. Of course they do. Everybody wants to build blocks with you or build a snowman or do whatever it is. It, you just wouldn't, everybody wants to go sledding together. It's not until later in life when we've kind of experienced these different ways in which we can be rejected or put down that we start to worry about how others perceive us. And they think that, that when I say, embrace your inner kindergartner. Kindergartners aren't worried about how, how other people look at them, right? They're, they're thinking about how they can make friends and how they can have fun and how they can do these things. But somehow when we become adults, when we think about putting ourselves out there, we're so concerned about what other people think of us that we don't ask for what we want. So on a really basic level, you know, for me, um, and people think it's, I don't know, funny and a little strange, but when I meet someone and I really have a great rapport for them, even if it's just five or 10 minutes in the gym or on an airplane, I'll just say to somebody, you know what? I really like you. Do you want to be my friend? Exactly the same way that I did in kindergarten. And it's amazing how many wonderful, beautiful friendships have evolved from that and relationships because I'm really not concerned about what people think about me. What I've learned is that no one's thinking about me. I'm the only person thinking about me, right? Everybody's so caught up in their own world that they're not thinking about you. And every now and then I do meet someone who will say to me, you're really strange. But those people are really few and far between. And I don't really care if they think I'm strange. I am, but I don't want to be anything other than who I am. Correct, correct. <laughs> I'm really enjoying our conversation. Okay. All right. So the next question. Um, what made you decide to walk away from a successful career and promising career path? Why did you walk away from it? <laughs> so the short answer is God, if we really want to be short about it. I think you know, I, I started my, and I've, I've had several different iterations in my career. I actually started my career in wealth management and I did that for a decade. And it was great. I mean, it's great if you're looking for financial stability and you're looking for a career path ahead and all of that. But I just felt empty. It was sort of like you got up and you went to work every day and you did a job and there were, there were parts of it that were good and that you enjoyed. But for the most part, it just wasn't, and I wouldn't even say like I was unhappy going to work in any way, shape or form, but I wasn't satisfied. Like I feel that God truly blesses each of us with unique gifts and ways in which we can shine his light just a little bit brighter. And I wasn't using mine. And so for me, 
you know, I had this great career in wealth management and I walked away. I took a 66% pay cut and walked away to go work for a nonprofit um, just to try it. And I thought, you know what, if I hate it, which is kind of the premise behind my book too, like, are you on the right bus? You can change buses all the time and as much as you want. And if you get off one bus and you get on another one and turns out you don't like it or it's not going to the right destination, you can always just pull the cord, get off and get back on the bus you were on before. So you have all these different options. We're not stuck in any one thing we do, but I wanted to align all of my skills and my abilities with something that had more meaning. So in leaving wealth management and going to work in philanthropy and specifically in fundraising, instead of just helping wealthy people get wealthier, I was helping people who had financial blessings they wanted to share and connect that to a mission that ultimately was saving kids' lives. And that meant a lot to me. And then from there, that was a really successful and promising career. And I quit that <laughs> to start my own business. Okay. And it was kind of the same thing. Like I, I had been successful in philanthropy and in raising money for this one nonprofit but in growing and expanding my network here in Houston and meeting all my friends on airplanes and just saying to them, do you want to be my friend? Um, I had met so many amazing people and they said, you know, you, you do all this great work, but you do it for one nonprofit. What if you started a business and you could teach multiple nonprofits that are having an impact how to do what you do? And I just, I felt like that was my next calling, like to take everything I had done and really scale it out. Wow. Brilliant. You know, when one is not functioning in one's purpose, that person will never feel satisfied, no matter what never. I tell you. So I'm so glad that you have that understanding that God wants to make his light shine through you. That's so beautiful, Angela. I tell you. Thank you. <laughs> okay, so Thank you. The, the third question, and after this, we've got one more. All right? Okay. Okay, so yeah. um, what do you wish you knew before starting your own business? What was that thing you, you wish you knew before starting your business? So, all right, I have another funny story for you. When I started my business, I, it, was, it wasn't really planned. It wasn't thought out. I flew to Chicago. I met with my mentor. I said, this is what I'm thinking about doing. And she said, I think it's a great idea. You should do it. So I quit my job and flew home to Houston. My husband is like, oh, how was your trip? I'm like, it was great. I quit my job. And he's sitting there going, what? And I said, you know, I'm going to start a business. He said, what do you know about starting a business? I said, absolutely nothing. And he said, well, how much are you going to make? I said, I have no idea. And he <laughs> said, how many clients do you have? And I said, none. And Suffice it to say, he did not think it was the brilliant plan I did at the time. But I called, um, there's a gentleman who's really actively involved with my former employer, Mercy Home for Boys and Girls, and his name's Bob, and he owns a business, a very successful um, food business, actually. And I had gotten to know him, and so I called him and I said, Bob, I said, I'm leaving Mercy Home and starting my own business. And he said, oh, he said, well, let me give you one piece of advice. I said, what's that? He said, when you start a business, it's going to feel a little bit like you are assembling an airplane while you're flying it. And when you finish assembling the airplane, you're going to have a whole box of leftover parts. 
don't worry about the leftover parts, just keep the plane in the air. So I definitely think that was a great piece of advice because if you're really just focused on keeping the plane in the air, the rest kind of comes to you. I think most importantly, what I would have wanted to know before I started is when you think about being a solopreneur, because up until recently, it's been just me, there's only so much time that you have in any given day. So what are the things that you're doing, the services you're offering that are um, repeatable for every single client? Like what's true for every client? And whatever those things are that are true for every client, how can you automate that to give yourself more time? Because what happened to me, and so my business, I work in nonprofit consulting. So I work predominantly with smaller nonprofits that are more social service oriented. I just, I care a lot about social issues. And for them to be successful, I have to, you know, run campaigns for them and help them raise money. Well, I'm sure you know, actually, let me ask you. So this Christmas, like between October 31st and December 31st, how many asks did you see from nonprofits for money? I, like a gazillion, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All over social media. It's in your email box. Like give money, support now, triple, we're going to triple your donation. It's, you get stuff in the mail. And the reason is, is that even though most Americans don't itemize, the vast majority of people are the most generous at the end of the year. In fact, still the single largest giving day of the year is December 31st. I don't know who's sitting around on New Year's Eve going like, oh, I got to make more donations to charity, but apparently a lot of people are. But that means that you have to be competitive in that space. So kind of the first couple of years I started my business, I had seven or eight clients at a time. That equates to like hundreds of emails, like 800 social media posts, all these letters. And I'm sitting there going like, oh my gosh, this is not sustainable. So I sat back and thought like, where do I spend the majority of my time? Number one, pre-pandemic, I spent so much time commuting to clients' offices when I could have just been meeting in Zoom. Um, number two, the information I was telling nonprofits in their offices they're so distracted, they're only retaining like a small portion of it. So instead of going to their office and kind of meeting with them one-on-one -on -one and imparting my knowledge that way, I created an online course. And so now what my clients do is they go through the same way we do in school, right? You know how like you, when you're in school, you go to class, you do a homework, then you review the homework and then you build on that. I did the exact same thing with my consulting practice. So now my clients, they go through like online learning, they have a week to do it. And then we do a coaching session where we kind of recap what they learned and talk about how it applies to their business. And then they get a week to implement it. And so number one, instead of spending four or five hours a week with me, they're spending two hours a week between their, you know, their learning, their homework and their coaching time. And number two, they're getting it in chunks. And number three, they have lifetime access to the course. Because the other thing that happened to me all the time is people, clients used to call me and say, hey, Angela, remember that thing that you said six months ago? Uh-uh. Like, I, I don't even know what I had for breakfast yesterday. I, for the love, I, I could not tell you what I said six months ago. But now it's all recorded for them. So when they're wondering, how do I say this to a donor? Or how do I do, how do I 
word this, they can just go back because they're kind of the same things that we repeat over and over and over again. So it's made a huge impact. And for me, eliminating my commute time and then really eliminating delivering the same information over and over and over again to a client by having it pre-recorded has freed up a ton of my time to allow me to scale. So I think that's something that I wish someone would have shared with me when I first got started is what are the things that you're going to do over and over and over again that you can somehow record or capture in a way that people can engage with the content, get more out of it, but free up some of your time. That's that's really, really insightful. Okay, so the last question. Yeah, the last yeah. question. Okay, so what prompted you to write a book? Then how, okay, sorry, and how can, let's say there's someone who wanna get a copy of your book, how can that be possible? So just, let's just run. Yes, absolutely. Thank you for asking. Um, okay, so in 2021, I got invited to, well, first of all, let me back up. So if you kind of go through, I mentioned to you earlier, I spent the first decade of my career in wealth management. And a lot, most of the people in that industry majored in finance or economics or something like that. I double majored in college in Spanish and communication studies, and then spent a decade of my career in wealth management. And the majority of that actually in management, like leading teams of wealth advisors and insurance agents. So it's not really a clear path from Spanish and communication studies into like, you know, <laughs> wealth and estate transfer planning and money management and all those kinds of things. So people have always said to me like, oh my gosh, you have such an interesting background and, you know, kind of all these stories and things that I've done with my life. Well, in 2021, I was asked to speak to a group of high school students here in Houston who are part of a, um, an academic program called Atlas Scholars about entrepreneurship. And so I go in, I give my whole presentation. And at the end of the presentation, the first question that a student asked me was, what do you do when your parents want you to pursue something that's practical, but you're really not passionate about? And most of the kids in the room, you know, they're first generation here in the US or first generation college students. And so their parents are really concerned about financial stability but they're kids. And when you, you, you mentioned it earlier, your purpose, right? They feel like they have this calling, this purpose, and like maybe they wanna be an artist, but their parents are saying, no, you're gonna be a lawyer. And the thought of being a lawyer just made, made them sad in their soul, and I get that. So I realized kind of in that moment that my path to entrepreneurship was far more interesting than being an entrepreneur myself. And I, then I started thinking about all the people I know who literally hate their jobs. Like they complain about them. They don't want to go to work every day. They don't like what they do, but they view it as a means to an end. And I think that's where I kind of got on a, a different path early on. And so what prompted me to write the book was, okay, if I can put on paper all of the different things that I've done and all of the reasons why, because truly, if you look at my resume on paper, you probably think I'm ADD or like I fail a lot. And so I start over a lot, but it's not really true. I, I take opportunities as they come and then I build on them trying to get to the place where I am now fulfilling my purpose. 
So I thought if I can put this on paper and if I can inspire even one person to follow, to trust their gut and to say, okay, these are the things I love. These are the things I'm good at. And if I'm passionate about these things, others are going to see that passion in me and the rest is going to work itself out. So if I could inspire even one person to do that, writing a book would all be worth it. Um, so you can buy the book on Amazon. It's available in um, on Kindle, on um, paperback and hardback on Amazon. If you're a Barnes & Noble person, you can also buy it on barnesandnoble.com. And then starting hopefully in February, keep your fingers crossed, it'll be available on audiobook as well. Okay, okay, not so good. Okay, so Angela, in conclusion, what would you like to say to the audience? Is there some things you'd like to say in conclusion? Yeah, I mean, I'd love to say to your audience, be bold and be brave and, and trust yourself. Each of us has uh, unique gifts that no one else has. We're all created differently and we all have the ability to inspire. And if you're sitting, if you're on a bus that you hate or you're sitting in the wrong seat on a bus, don't be afraid to pull the cord and make a switch. You don't have to continue down a path that you don't want to be on. Trust your gut, trust your instinct, and let your light shine as bright as you possibly can. That's so beautiful. Thank you for that. <laughs> Thank you, Angela, for following the invite. It means a whole lot. Thank you so very much. That's going to be the end of the show. Thank you for coming. Thank you for honoring the invite. Thank you it's for so having me. Yeah. Yes, this is wonderful. Thank you so much. You have a wonderful day. Bye. That was a beautiful one. Thank you for tuning in to this incredible episode. Your support means the world to us, and we truly value you. We look forward to having you join us for the next episode. If you enjoyed what you heard, please consider rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. Your feedback is greatly appreciated.